Welcome to the Charity Network News Podcast, inspiring you to make the world a better place. Our host is Lex Lumiere, an award-winning therapeutic artist whose family legacy includes over a hundred years of art exhibits and providing artwork for international non-profit fundraisers. In our show, you'll hear mind-blowing interviews from philanthropy leaders or creative souls, as well as news and insights to help you make a positive impact in your community. Now let's jump into your daily dose of juice. Please join us in creating excellence. My name is Lex Lumira. I'm here today as a citizen artist with the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. And our guest today is Chris McCann with The Path of Tea. He is a business owner and manager and man of many hats. <laughs> See, I rarely wear a hat. Mm-hmm. Very rarely, but he wears many. He just doesn't tell you about it. So, Chris, tell me a little bit about your background. My background, okay. Let's see, I was born in Virginia, and uh, we ended up immigrating to Texas because my father was with NASA, and so we came here with NASA. So we were the implants at the time. Okay. So your dad was a genius, is what you're telling me. No, he was an engineer. Yeah, he, he was pretty much a genius. <laughs> he really was. You're very rocket. humble about it, but he I'm going to be he honest. He was a rocket engineer, not a rocket oh, scientist. That's okay. Still a genius. They were rocket scientists. Yeah, they were, he was good. And so that's how we got here. So we came to Texas, and it was a shocker because we came from Virginia. We lived right on the Chesapeake. So we thought, okay, Texas won't be that bad. It'll be interesting. There'll be the Alamo. We'll be riding horses to school. Well, Houston's anything but that. But also, that first time we got here, it was over 100 degrees every day. And it was like 98% humidity every day. It takes a minute to get used to. And Dad had just temporarily put us in a house that had no AC. And we <laughs> You're thought, like, welcome to Southern Heat. Yeah, we thought we'd been moved, we had moved to hell. And then there were these things called cockroaches. <laughs> you know, these Our Texas walking, State bird. Walking cigars, and it was like, it was just shocking. And then there were the... the they um, fly, too. They fly, Just so. like a NASA rocket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Texas rockets, so... Anyway, so, and then we got to deal with all the ants down here, the fire ants, which we we never experienced any of that stuff before in Virginia. Well, yeah, because you were in a softer climate, like... It was a lot softer, you know, lots snow. of snow. It was just shocking. You actually had here. seasons up north. Yeah. Texas, you get, like, hot, wet, and cold, and not really cold, like, slight cold. Yeah. We had four seasons in Virginia. And you grew up on the beach, right? Yeah, we grew up around the Chesapeake. So the second year we were here, we actually moved down to the bay, Galveston Bay, because that's where NASA was finally, you know, built. We got that first year, NASA wasn't ready yet down there. So okay. it was much better being down there because we, again, we lived around the water. So were they just building NASA off of NASA Road 1? Yeah. Okay, wow. They're just putting it together. Okay. So I experienced all that, the whole thing. It was the glory years of NASA. You know, mm-hmm. with the shots going off and the astronauts and all this kind of stuff. And people were just focused on all that was happening here. And right. so you're like, oh, my God, your dad works for NASA? You know, so. Mm-hmm. Because boys that. love the rockets. Oh, yeah. That's one of the best deal. experiments in school. Yeah. And it was just, you know, going to the moon back then. That was just. That's huge. It was huge. Even now, I think it's still huge. The fact that we have the technology or the mental acumen or 
you know, people like your father who have the understanding of science and math to a degree that you can bend physics, you know, or understand physics. Yeah, yeah. But it was very, so I heard lots and lots of stories from him about NASA, why it was so successful. Because before NASA, you know, the Air Force handled that project and they were an utter failure. Really? They were an utter failure. The rock, you know, the, the Soviets get up in space first, they got the Sputnik up, you know, they're doing everything first, and we hadn't even gotten off the ground yet. Mm. So at that time, I remember it, people were freaking out in the government. They thought, oh my God, the Russians, are, they're taking the lead, they're going to wipe us out, you know. So it was a big deal. Mm. So there was a lot of focus on NASA. And then we landed on the moon. Yeah, once, uh, basically, when we got, when we did the first orbit with Glenn, that's when we moved ahead of the Russians. And okay. we never looked back, and the Russians just never got anywhere close to coming to the moon. Hmm. Going to the moon. So that was a huge success. Do you have any intel on the moon? Because I heard, let me tell you what I heard about the moon. I heard that the moon was already occupied on the other side, and that's why they didn't want to build a space station there. Because whoever were there was predatory. There are lots of stories <laughs> out there. Okay, when we lived in New Zealand, my wife and I were living in New Zealand for five years, and we were talking to one of our friends. Says, "Oh yeah, NASA. They never went to the moon. It was all it was all staged. The whole thing, you know." And Your I'm dad works for NASA, and you're like, mm. "Yeah, I'm going really." And I talked to my dad about that. He said, "Well, you know, it would have been a hell of a lot harder to actually cover something like that up than it was just to go ahead and go to the moon, <laughs> and right. that was very, very difficult." He said, "Can you imagine having over 200,000 people totally in on the game, and no one could leak it? No one could. I mean, it's, it's impossible." Right. It's like the game train when you play as yeah. a kid and you try to speak in the speakers and it comes out different in the very end, you know, to keep a secret or to see if you can get the phrase right. No, it comes out completely butchered. And, and, and someone's gonna. Talk. Blow the whistle, you know. So besides that, there are at least uh, what there's a number of men who've actually been on the moon. So there's a certain number of people. So I told this guy, I said, listen, okay, so you don't believe it, that's fine, but the evidence is on the moon actually as to whether we went there or not. Mm -hmm. It's sitting right there on the moon. Well, the fact that you can get the rocket, it's no, to me, it's no different than an airplane. So they always say artists are crazy, but you know, the 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 Wright brothers, in my opinion, were also scientists in a way they were also artists because you're creating this thing in your mind you're sketching it out and then you're trying to manufacture it into reality when you're doing the rockets it takes so many people to understand math science physics um to a get that giant very heavy you know rocket up in the sky without it falling back down and then also keeping it from burning up in the atmosphere when it comes in and out of the earth's but you know what my dad told me? Fascinating. He said the most difficult thing in the whole project, and there were masses of difficult things, but he said the solutions, where the, where the solutions came from, that was the genius of NASA, because they just had a totally open forum. Mm-hmm. And that was, and of course the Air Force was completely secretive. Right. You know, and that was the reason they weren't getting anywhere, because they didn't have the influx of ideas. And dad said he just watched it, because he was in there the whole time, he said, We'd have some problems, seemed to be insurmountable, and out of nowhere, someone would come in with an idea that was it. Boom. Mm -hmm. He said that happened over and over and over again. He said that was the success of NASA. The fact that it was totally open, if anybody had any idea at all, someone would listen. 
the yeah. synchronicity of it. That well, you have so many people that have so many different life skills in different things that they might understand engineering in a way that someone else doesn't, and it's just that one concept that someone else goes, oh wait, that works with this or that. Just yeah. teamwork and, makes the dream work. Yeah, and someone from a different point of view will have a different perspective, and they'll come up with this idea that they're just mm. kind of thinking about, and that happens all the time. So you have these, and Dad said we'd be sitting there, we have some problem, we're trying to figure out how to do it. You just couldn't get there. And then someone out of, out of the blue just comes in who wasn't necessarily, uh, that wasn't his field exactly. Because there are lots of different fields involved in NASA. And someone have an idea, and then we said, we'd all sit there and look at each other and go, oh my God, why didn't we think of that? Mm. So that happened all the time. He said, mm. so it was a phenomenal project. And he said, he said, the fact we got there within that decade, which, you know, JFK said, we're going to get to the moon in this decade. We're going to be on the moon by this decade, end of the decade. And he said, that was a phenomenal fact that we actually made it. It was just incredible. Mm-hmm. But he said, synergy. it was just an incredible energy that put that together. So yeah, damn. It was very, yeah, so that has all kinds of wild stories. And your family is from? Virginia originally. But your bloodline is from where? Scotland. Okay. Scotland, the land of men in dresses. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a man in a kilt. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So this is what I was going to tell you is that I found out that on my dad's side, so my paternal side, mm-hmm. right? Um, my great great grandmother is from Scotland, and she was she's no, actually I have no idea. I have to do more research on her, but she is actually buried in the Hollywood Cemetery here in Houston, and they buried her a hundred years ago in the cemetery. Wow. I'm not funny. Yeah. Um, but she reminds me of, she's you, well, you know Farquaad. Farquaad. Like, like oh, in Farquaad. Shrek. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Farquaad? Yeah. Okay. That, there is the clan, Farquaad. Okay, you could probably look up where that clan is located. I'll have to figure it out. There. Also, you might, you know, if you, I went down, I was in the genealogy library here for about three years straight. I was just fascinated with our history of our family and uh, did a lot of digging. And they have this giant book and every, wherever there's been listed, somebody entering the United States from the very beginning, uh-huh. they put it in that book. And oh, so that's you might cool. look and see. Do you know if your family came through Ellis Island? No, no, not at all. Okay. Ellis Island was not in existence when my you ancestor came. came through. Okay. Yeah, he, he was shipped over to Jamestown, Virginia in 1652. So he was, which was too early for Scots. They were not coming over at that time. Mm-hmm. But the Scots were busy fighting the English at that time. And he was, I'm most positive from my research, that he was on the losing end of a, of a battle, mm-hmm. taken prisoner, because there were a lot of different people who were taken uh, prisoner like that. And they didn't want to have to fight him again, so they just shipped him off to the colonies as indentured servants. Mm-hmm. That's almost positive. That's probably how he got here. He had to go through all that heartache just to have a great great grandson who could help people at NASA. That's right. There you go. I mean, you know, well, you know, it's yeah. like I didn't know I had Scottish in me. I I know I'm French and like Apache Indian and Spanish, but mm-hmm. I had no idea. Well, yeah. that the Scott thing is what makes you really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> makes me want to fight. It gives you your, it gives you your sense. Of it gives me the battle. It gives me there. the battleground. Yeah. That's so fascinating, you, though. You have that desire to go kill English, you'll know where it comes from. Oh, no, I thought that was part of Apache, the temperament. Oh, yeah, too. You know, if you look at all the Alamo, those statues outside the Alamo, mm. every single one has fought, attacked by Apache, attacked by Apache, attacked by Apache <laughs> for every century. It's really funny. The Apaches were, yeah. Yeah, they were a little fierce warrior. 
you know, it's, as long as you stay on our good side. But, but my question, yeah, you know, what's interesting too about space is I think, you know, going into the future, it is leading the future really is space exploration and, um, habitat inhabiting space. Um, yeah. And they had like pieces of that for Mars. They had the exhibitions of life on Mars. They plan on colonizing it by, I believe it's 2030. They want to colonize the first community there. And so it's interesting that you're a NASA baby. Yeah. So how did you end up getting into business? Um, it was very strange because I was raised, my father worked for NASA, right? So my image of what you did as an adult was you just go work for somebody. Mm-hmm. So I have four other brothers and sisters, and it turns out every one of us has ended up being self-employed. And mm. my parents ended up being self-employed too. And dad re- retired from NASA. Because you're too smart to be bossed around. Uh, something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Actually, I can thank my younger brother because my younger brother, after I finished getting a master's degree in mm-hmm. psychology, I realized he didn't really want to be in the field. So that was the end of that little career. And so my younger brother. He came to me and said, hey, let's start this custom hardwood floor business. Mm. And so that's what we did. Is this the same brother that took you around the world? No, no. That was that was my younger brother. My older brother took me around the world. Okay. I still think and that's so cool. And he has all the Irish luck. He won that trip mm. for two people. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. I think it would be fun to travel with someone all over the world for like a year. Well, in this case, we can only afford about three and a half months. And also we had to get back to college. I right. Was, I was between high school and college, so I had to get back and go to college. That's what we believed anyway. So he had to get back, you know. So did y'all cut the trip short? No, it wasn't short. It's just we had that much time. We had 100 days. We just Oh, you just booked traveled. it out. Yeah, That's cool. Just, yeah. So Good we got just a quick experience of lots and lots of places around What was the your favorite place? There wasn't just one. It was impossible to say my one favorite place. Okay, so if you were telling people where to go? Or would you recommend them try to oh, see? God. I try to find out what their interest is, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, the world. Give me a spot. In 19, 1968. What's a spot that you enjoyed world? that you didn't think, that you think people wouldn't? One place I was fascinated with, well, one thing was the Middle East at that time. Okay. The other place was India. Oh. But then, you know, also have to admit, have to admit that, you know, when we were in Japan, I found that fascinating, too. Mm. I it's impossible to say one place, but the Middle East interested me so much that when I finished getting my bachelor's degree, I went and traveled for nine months all through the Middle East. Did you? 1973. Wow, I wasn't born yet. That's very cool though. Yeah, so that was a great trip. Yeah. What was your favorite part of the Middle East? Um, there, there's just too many. There was just too much stuff. I really liked. I really liked history. And so I loved all the history of that area, and it was mm-hmm. a it was a different culture, you know. Did you visit any of the temples in the mountains? Um, there weren't any temples in the mountains that I really visited in the Middle East at that time. Um, but I remember Jordan was probably the most fascinating geography. Mm-hmm. It was incredible some of the stuff that's there. Yeah, I'm sure. Historically. When we first drove, I was in, I got a, a ride. We were in, I was in Saudi Arabia. And the only reason you, I could get into Saudi Arabia is we had friends who worked for Aramco. And so mm-hmm. we were, I was able to get in. Okay. Otherwise, there are no tourists in Saudi Arabia. Right. Like and Syria. So that was, it was fascinating just because I was in a country that not many Westerners got to see. Mm-hmm. You know, and the culture, everything. Well, it's cool too because you're a man, so there's a lot of things you can see. That's true. If you 
<laughs> or a woman traveling <laughs> in the Middle East. That can be a real problem. If you're by yourself, forget it. Yeah, I did a proposal for a foundation for covering the orphanages around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to do an art exhibit on that, but there are two that are predominantly um, Muslim, and they won't allow women into the encampments. You have to have special clearance, especially in Syria, because one of the largest orphanages in the world is on the border of Syria, and I'm very curious about it. And the only Syrian male, what? I don't, I don't know the cross of what that is, but it's, it's was built right on the border, mm-hmm. um, and they were saying that the only American correspondent you have to have high, really high level security clearance to get in. But I just feel like there are so many orphan stories, you know, because around the world, they were basically wiping out entire communities to take those assets away. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you raise the orphans how you want to raise them, whatever religious beliefs or however you want to brainwash them. Okay. You know, my curi- curiosity is always, are we keeping tabs on all these children? You know, because you have Haiti and there are 2.5 million. And then we have that congregation, which is over 5 million orphans. You have another one in um, Indonesia. That's the second largest. And you can't get in that one either. As a woman, you have to have, like, male security. Mm-hmm. And it's still risky. Yeah. You know, no matter what, it's risky. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, can I just have a drone? That's <laughs> what it is. Yeah. So you go on this tour around the world, and then your brother, your younger brother, decides he wants to start a hardware business. No, hardwood floor business. Oh, hardwood floor. Oh, he really wanted to get you dirty. So we did custom hardwood flooring. Okay. I did that for 25 years. Wow. Are you picky about floors when you see them? Yeah, I can be picky (laughs) because, you know. um, And how'd you roll into tea? Well, that was due to my wife. Yeah. And of the two of us, my wife really was the entrepreneur. I mean, again, she was self-employed pretty much her whole life, too. So did y'all open the tea shop together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we were in New Zealand, lived there for five years. And when we came back, she just wanted to do something different, totally different. And mm-hmm. she just got this thing in her head. She wanted to do tea. And so she found a, a tea master in Southern California who would, you know, take her under his wing. And so he certified her. Hmm. And so she was the first tea master, really a certified tea master in Texas. I know now they just have these, you go for a weekend, become a tea master. That, that's, that's not it. But you know, so, and she decided, we're going to do tea, we're going to have a little tea shop, and next thing I know, we're doing it. <laughs> right, you have the dream, and then she's, she's manifesting into reality. I love that. Yeah, she was good at that. Yeah, far beyond would, just dreaming. Yeah, she would do things quickly, too. I mean, things would just happen. And your shop has been here how long? Almost 15 years now. It will be wow. 15 years this summer. Hmm. In July. My God. That's a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. That's hard to believe. Yeah. It's amazing how like life will lead you down a certain way. Oh, yeah. I had no idea how my life was going to move. Well, how did you meet your wife? I met Thea. We were, we were in our 40s when we met. Okay. And... Um, I had a, I was recovered, I was in India where I got toxically poisoned, unfortunately, but anyway, so I was having to recover from that, and um, so I was... Did you eat something? It's actually uh, radioactive. Oh, wow. Wow. I was in India, and we were up there right in Ladakh, which is Mm -hmm. right there in the very top, that little peak in India, and that was right after Chernobyl. Oh, okay. And yeah, anyway, radiation poisoning. Yeah, so probably what happened, because I remember talking to some of the Indians up there. They said, oh, yeah, we do, we do a lot of trading with the Russians. 
you know, which way mm. you get grain, all this kind of stuff. And then after this whole thing happened, I was diagnosed. It was like, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, we were sitting one evening up in Lodog, and I had two friends and a couple with with me. We traveled together, and we were had this meal, and I ate these soft boiled eggs like they're going out of style, these English style soft boiled eggs, and uh, they didn't touch them. And we were real careful about our food. And uh, that night, my body was trying to expel any and everything out of it, out of every orifice. Wow, you got really sick. All in eight hours, and I just was sick as a dog. So looking back on that figuring out what happened, I just remember this conversation. So more than likely what happened was some tainted grain was sold. Oh, okay. Across the border into the Indian to the Indians from Russia. And you know, eggs are kinda of like how you really collect and you kind of um, get whatever toxin, you know, mm-hmm. in amplified form. So they always say when something happens like that, the first thing you dump are the eggs and the milk. Right. That would just hold that toxicity, that radiation poisoning. Wow. So I was sick as a dog. Really sick. Anyway, so about two years after I was really doing a lot better, um, a friend of mine said, Listen, uh, I know you're working on your detoxing. There's this lady who does colonics. I would highly recommend you go see her. So I did. It turned to be Theo. Hmm. So that's how we met. Wow. You never know. <laughs> right? No kidding. You never know. She she got to see everything before she bought. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, so so that's what we were doing. Love at first sight. Yeah, so we moved to New Zealand. We had no idea what we were going to do there. And as it turned out, we started doing clocks. There's a heavy demand for it. Mm. You know, in this town, Nelson, New Zealand. Uh, and it's just, they just had nothing like that. And we had met this chiropractor, who's more than just a chiropractor, and he was into all the alternative stuff. He said, oh my God, you've got, when he found out that there was a colon therapist, he said, you've got to go to work. I've got so many people need to go to see you. Mm. And so, boom, there we were, blown and gone. Well, yeah, that's probably, well, it's also part of the cancer treatments too, is colonics, if you want them to live. You know, colonics is a huge part of that, and there really aren't a lot of people that do it. No. It's a little bit of a dirty business. Well, the thing about it, uh, as time has gone on, you know, there's few and fewer of it going on. And they, in the medical profession, they like to use the drugs. Mm-hmm. They think it's a lot easier, faster, cheaper. They just do it that way. I read a story once about there's a parasitic doctor. His name is Rich Duke. And he, they carry his books at like Whole Foods, but he tells this story about colonics, about a military man. I guess he was like an officer, but he did his specialty was um, uh, explosives. And his best friend was got on this huge like wellness kick and was like, I want to be super healthy. And he got into colonics and cleanses and stuff. And he's telling his best friend, oh, come on, come on, come on. You know, you got to do this, you got to do this, pestering him. And he's like, oh, man, just to shut him, shut him up, I'm going to do it. So they live in completely different cities. And so his friend sends him Rich Duke's recipe for colonics to clean out his colon. And so he does the detox for like 30 days. And as a joke, he decides that he's going to take all his feces. He's going to dry it on a clothesline 
put it in a jar and then ship it to his friend with a note that says, see, I did the damn detox now. Quit harassing me about it, right? <laughs> and he, he it, was, it was just a military thing joke that they were doing between right. each other. And he sends it in the mail, and then two days later he gets this. And it ends up being the FBI. And they wanted to know, started asking him questions, and they wanted to know why he sent explosives in the mail to his friend. And he's like, explosives? Like, what are you talking about? He goes, I sent feces in a jar as a joke. And they go, no, sir, you sent explosives. And he said, no, no, I really did it as a joke. I still have some hanging on the clothing line. So he takes them out back and they see the clothing line. They take a sample and they're, you know, they have their little bomb squad with them. And sure enough, what it was, was that he had from his, now mind you, he's like in his 60s now. He was like drafted when he was 17 doing explosives. And so he was doing the explosives and um, they say to him, oh my gosh, like you, you did explosives in the military. So this has been in your colon since you were 17 years old. You were carrying explosives in your colon. And he goes, you were like a, literally like a ticking time bomb. You know, and didn't even realize it. And thank God your friend had you do this cleanse because all of that stuff would still be in your body. Mm -hmm. I said, isn't that funny that divine intervention was through his friend who he thought was pestering him, right? <laughs> but yeah. so interesting that, like, things like that. <laughs> yeah, that he didn't end up in prison. But. Yeah, it's interesting because Thea said one of the more unusual things that happened to her was a client, you know, because you have a little viewing to it, right? Because mm -hmm. she needs to see and see what's going on. And uh, she said, what was unusual, this little penny comes through. She sees the copper penny go through, right? Hmm. And she just talking to the lady, she said, um, have you swallowed a penny recently? And, I, and the lady says, what are you talking about? She says, I just got a penny coming out of you. You know? And the lady said, they talked a while, and the lady went, oh my God. She said, she remembers swallowing a penny when she was a teenager. And this lady's probably in her 50s at least. Wow, so it does you know, it sit in the colon. It's stuck that long in her colon. Well, it's interesting, too, because in integrative medicine, the they say that the memory, the cellular memory, stays in the small intestine, mm -hmm. and that it attaches to the mucus that lines the entire intestine, and that if you're trying to get someone over trauma, you really also need to detox their colon, because when that mucus sloughs off, that's when the cellular memory will release it. So I was like, that's fascinating. Well, but from a psychological standpoint, and Thea knew this very, very well. She was very intuitive with people. And she, people will tell you, she had colonics on, she would, they will always say, well, yeah, she did a really good job of cleaning out physically, but there was always an emotional component to it. She was right. very good about that. And Thea was very good at addressing that. And she said, we hold an awful lot of emotion right here in the cup. Right, and that's sacral chakra. And she said, I know that from experience. Hmm. But also, you know, there's people who talk about all that. And so had she always, out of that business, had she always dreamed of having a tea shop? Was that just something? No, it what was What was her just, love of tea? Where'd that come from? Well, she, it was... Um, She's gone from one end to the other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, no, she, the thing about tea, we were living in New Zealand, and our good friend, Dr. Joe Lindley, was saying, have you ever thought about doing tea? Because he loves tea, right? And Jack, they always enjoyed... Asia. She really loved China, just the whole mystique about China, and Japan to an extent. But uh, anyway, so for whatever reason, it just struck her fancy. She wanted to get into tea, and she loved the whole, as she learned more and more about it, the whole concept 
mm-hmm. you know, the philosophy behind the Japanese tea ceremony. Yeah, you know, it's, pr- it's very pretty. It, it, and it's also very deep and very profound. It, there's an awful lot going on there. Machado, the way of tea. And so that really kind of fascinated her. And of course, I always was taken with Japan. I it was a romantic. Yeah, I mean, Japan is just... Um, the the ceremonial tea ceremonies for romance are really beautiful. Yeah, and of course Westerners don't know anything about what that means because I mean every little movement in the Japanese tea showing means something. Right, unless they've seen Karate Kid one, two, and three. <laughs> he gets <laughs> the second one where he romances her or she romances yeah, him well, in the tea ceremony. Yeah, they, they're very <laughs> superficial in that one. But anyway, but yeah, you could. Get the an idea. idea. Yeah. But the other thing that's interesting about the Japanese tea ceremony, Japan, feudal Japan, I mean, they were uh, basically fighting nonstop for a thousand years. They were just a warrior nation. They were fighting each other mostly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're just all about warfare, the samurai. And back in the time the Japanese tea ceremony evolved, about 500 years ago, life was super cheap there. I mean, the, the ruling samurai, the lords and daimyos, Life is just cheap. I mean, you know, you could be alive and someone could just cut your head off in a moment. Hmm. No repercussions. Just, anyway, that's the way it was. So it was a terrible time to be living in Japan if you're a peasant. And so when they evolved this Japanese tea ceremony, they evolved this situation where when people would come into the tea, uh, you know, to do the tea ceremony starting out, everybody was on an equal footing. There was no violence. It was all about learning how to be the perfect guest and the perfect mm-hmm. host. You know, and so it was so strange. You get this totally opposite thing happening with the Japanese tea ceremony compared to what life was like at that time. Right. And so it's kind of mind-blowing. They actually evolved it at that time. And it really is. But anyway, so they have this whole philosophy that's just totally immersed in that Japanese tea ceremony. So I remember I was reading this a long time ago. There's some Japanese author who was saying, you know, the, Jap- the Japanese tea ceremony is the epitome of Japanese culture. At the time, I thought, well, how shallow can you get? Right. You know, you're basing your whole culture on drinking a beverage. I just didn't understand at all at that time. It was a long time ago. <laughs> so, like but yeah, but it's true. They just have this whole philosophy that's in that Japanese tea ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so Thea was fascinated with all that, you know, and so... The way really of Zen. Into it. Yeah. yeah. So we got into it. So we created the tea shop. The idea was to create a space for her to just start creating that kind of sacred space, we were thinking mm-hmm. about. So we had a whole, whole intention about the tea shop. It wasn't just a place to make money or anything like that. It was about doing tea, what tea was really about. And when she was getting her tea mastership, um, I think she was she learned a lot more about all of that. And that just, she loved it. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and the so, beauty of community, and that's what you create here. That's really what her focus is on, building a, a place where people can come together and start to come into com- you know, community. So as you a know. business owner, how has the, the response to COVID-19 been for you? Like, coming from the government, how has the government response for, as a, to businesses? You know, well, it's been real, real tough on middle-class America. Small businesses have been, I mean, it's been real tough real time and you have these stimulus packages and so forth but that just doesn't quite cut it for so many people mm-hmm. you know who have small businesses oh, and yeah 10,000 restaurants have closed across you know like yeah it's been hard hit so yeah, it's just been tough and everybody kind of I think knows that how do you think that they could do it better in the future I think 
well, there's probably a lot of things that could happen, but I think there's going to be a lot of people looking at all this in hindsight and going, okay, so who did it right? Who did it wrong? What worked? What didn't work? You know, and there may be some big changes, you know, that need to take place. I think the grants to small businesses need to be bigger. You know, and not, lo- I, 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 don't, the, I don't think I would give you a loan. I would give you a grant so you wouldn't have to worry about paying it back. Well, with the PPP, you know, that's all that's up to where we keep the employees working, you know, mm-hmm. and that's great. And if, if it's within a certain kind of um, framework, you know, then it's excusable, it's right. forgivable. And so they'll forgive those the small loans. And so there's a lot of that going on. But I know there's a lot of people looking at all this and going, but our government's broke. So what is this going to mean, this massive spending that there's no money, that really is no backing for? And I think there are a lot of people I know going, uh, this doesn't look good for the small person anymore. I mean, you know, no matter what, no matter what happens, the small person or middle class America is going to catch it. You know, and I think a lot of people are realizing the people, who, the large corporations, I mean, look at the look at the finances. They're doing very, very well. Some mm-hmm. of them having bumper years. Especially and, some of the people selling the masks and the hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about the, just the large corporate concerns. Right. Toilet um, paper companies. Yeah. Or like Amazon. Amazon's doing better than it's ever done. But I think that was Amazon was planned because there were certain companies that Amazon blocked the shipping. And, and so that the other companies couldn't ship their goods out. And I think that's, it makes me question like where America's monopoly laws have gone. Um, because yeah, it's great to have Amazon, but Amazon cannot take over the whole market legally. You know, that would make it a monopoly. But those, a lot of those things have been done away with. Um, Do you think they signed the law away? I mean... Well, you get the law laws that used to protect the, you know, the citizenry, you could say. Right, the smaller uh, businesses. They have disappeared. I mean, look at the monopoly on, really a monopoly on major media. Right. When I was growing up, because I remember we were in, mm-hmm. in high school. Well, yes, it is against the law for anyone, any individual or a corporate entity, whatever, to own more than one media. Right. Because it's monopolizing, you know, the free press. And mm-hmm. that's, that's basic constitutional rights. I mean, it's like we have to have a free press so you can forget the Constitution. I mean, that's number one in the Constitution. You look at that. That's what they talk about. They knew they had to have a free press so you can have everybody could be speaking whatever they thought was going on. Right. And now, the censorship, I think a lot of people have become very, very aware of the censorship going on. Mm-hmm. And this thing is just like, okay, does, very this look like, does this look like the big boys have taken over? I mean, you know. So I think there are a lot of people on a grassroots level that are looking at and questioning all of this. Mm. And I was just looking, I think there, there was a, um, for instance, a small thing, not really that small, on the vaccines, okay? I was just watching the, uh, there was a, I think it's called Pew, P-E-W. They do whatever, they'll do sense, they'll take, you know, um, and look at what, how people are responding to different things. And so they were looking at, I think in March, they said that about 75% of the American population was ready or 72% was ready to take a vaccine if it arrived. And then, I don't know, somewhere around in the fall, mm-hmm. it was down to about 50%. And I understand that right now, recently, it's down to about 21%. So American public, if that's correct, you know, the American public is becoming 
wary. They're not really trusting right. the they vaccine. Shouldn't. They're they're starting to look at things and go, well, I don't know about this, you know. Yeah, so, well, they're the I, guinea pig, you know. Yeah, I think so. There are a lot of people increasingly kind of looking at the narrative, looking at all the stuff, and going, I don't, something doesn't add up here. Right, Doctor. Yeah, Doctor Rima from the Natural um, Solutions Foundation has a. Uh, it's like a gold and a silver card you can do to have advanced directives if you don't want the vaccine, mm-hmm. or if you have a health condition and you don't want to wear the mask, so you don't get arrested like the poor lady in Galveston mm-hmm. for not wearing her mask. Um, there, you know, with the vaccine, it's you know you have one side pushing the vaccine, the other side doesn't want it, and. As someone that does nursing, I believe in your body, your choice, always. You know, all we can do is educate people and try to share with them, you know, what's going on. But I think the scary part with the vaccine, I was just told two days ago that by a physicist that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine actually is aborted fetus. And if that's the case, that's going to change your DNA structure. And I think, okay, they want to inject you with that. However, seven years ago when China was using aborted fetuses, grinding, drying them out, grinding them up and turning them into food coloring, we had to do a major recall on Gatorade, Campbell's Soup, and a few other very popular name brands that are eaten in America because they were selling that food coloring to us. Yeah. If we're not willing to eat the aborted fetus, I don't think we should be injecting it in our body either because that's going to change your DNA. And I'm not ready to be a cannibal. You know, that's that's not something I prescribe to. And I, I've, I've said this before where I think that as long as we are pushing this mandate for this vaccine, it's, it sets a very dangerous precedent for medicine because you're telling them now instead of having to do quality control of a vaccine which normally takes 10 to 15 years you're willing to take any medicine that they crank out and give it to you and your children and your family within a matter of months a year that's not enough time because you are the rabbit usually they're injecting this stuff in rabbits and rats to see how they respond to it it takes years of testing and yes you lose a lot of people we see that with the aids epidemic we still have no vaccine for that you know we have a a rushed vaccine for ebola but is this how we want all medicine to be do we want what about your antibiotics i mean is this going to say to them oh you know we can just crank out whatever we want because the challenge is is none of these pharmaceutical companies which are predominantly owned by china and some other foreign entities with american brand names um they are free from all liability because we have not fixed the legislation to say otherwise because we need to hold them accountable remember right at the very beginning of all this i mean that was announced that I think it was what Pfizer and Moderna, mm-hmm. when they said, you won't have to worry about any kind of legal implication. I mean, you know, you're immune to any problem. Because we want you to crank this out real fast, so therefore we're going to give you immunity. Yeah, but that's and not okay. When, when, when that happens, I'm just going, really? I mean, guys? Well, and Moderna is old IG Farben from the Holocaust. Do you really want the manufacturer of the Zyklon B gas? pumping you vaccine can you trust that and why is it that you know as a minority why is it that the mexican the black and it's wiping out the native american indians i mean they're we're losing entire tribes and so like you really have to look at where are you getting the vaccine from and who's giving it to you mm-hmm. you know um pfizer is a much more reputable one than moderna mm-hmm. you know but is china 
funding. You know, what I wonder in the background is, is this China's way of decimating the population? Because I had a lot of dreams after that. A lot of people were wearing pink everywhere and not pink in a good way. Pink is in it is accelerating cancer in the body and they're not going to see it for 10 or 15 years. You know, God bless the people that I know that have taken the vaccine because they're teachers or doctors or whatever, and they're trying to stay in their profession. But I still don't think it's okay to subject them to that. You know, when we don't know the long-term implications of of what it's going to do to the body. There are so many things happening right now in mm-hmm. this country, in so many levels. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, in terms of what's happening with middle class, it's unprecedented right. how much wealth is leaving the middle class and going to the upper, you know, whatever percent of the population. There's just a massive shift in wealth mm-hmm. that's happened in a year. Right, and, and I'm so, sure now we've moved billions because of the the medicine and stuff. Well, that's another thing. And on top of that, you have, you have to have their medicines. Now, me personally, I like to have my own choice of what kind of health I'm gonna health I'm gonna be. You know, I'm gonna do it. But you know who I think started the concept was the Bushes because they they had a thing for the disaster based economy, mm-hmm. and Jed Bush, you know, um, Bush Jr.'s son, brother ran you know florida but he was making money off the government contracts of reconstructing projects and stuff Mm -hmm. and they were testing the rfid chips that they now put in you know your american express blue card or now in your body of the elderly people that was all being tested in florida and i look at that and i think that's very like snaky to make a disaster and then i'm going to give my brother the contract so that he can be the one to clean it up and make the money well look at the second gulf war yeah I mean, it's not lost on a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. that you had the second Gulf War. It turns out, well, the reason they said we had to go in, it turns out it was totally bogus. But no one talks about that. And then, you know, you have the situation where Halliburton is just making absolute killing, these huge contracts yeah. to rebuild the infrastructure of Iraq, which was blown up by our military. And so you look at that, and then you look at... I mean, you know, you look at all that, you go, okay, isn't that interesting? And I remember when those, that first night, when all that fighting started, when they were, all the planes were flying in, they were bombing out everything. And I remember there was one reporter, I think it was British, he was reporting on, okay, they're knocking out the communication systems, it makes total sense, right? But at some point they were saying, why are they knocking out the war systems? And the whole electrical grid, that's not really a military target. Everyone knows this war is going to be over in two or three weeks. Why are they knocking that all, that all out? And then, I don't know if you remember what I know you don't. Um, but after the fighting was all over, you had this situation where people have no water, they mm. have like electricity. It's, you know, we're in a you desert. You starve them out, yeah. We're in a desert, and the conditions were horrible. All of a right. sudden, all these populations and cities were just desperate. And all of a sudden, we're going to be the real nice guys, the real big guys. We're going to come in and fix it all for them. But we did. For. I mean, awful lot of money. And I do remember there was yeah. a congressman in Congress because, you know, Halliburton would come up every week in front of Congress and oh, we need this amount of money, we need this amount of money. And there's this one, I can't remember his name now, he's one, I think it was a senator, he said, why don't we just hand the keys of the Treasury over to Halliburton? They can just take whatever they want. We don't have to even go through this process anymore. They can just take anything they want. I mean, he actually said that. I remember reading all that. I used to think of the Silk Road. The point being that we're just being cleaned out. 
Mm-hmm. The, the, the people of this country are paying, are paying a horrific amount of money to rebuild an infrastructure that was bombed out in this war. There was not, they were not military targets. Well, so, not even anyway. that, but in war, when have we become responsible for some, I mean, I know we do humanitarian aid, but at the same time, I think why we spend trillions of dollars in military gear and weapons, and I'm in support of the military, but we need to take care of our own country before we're pushing out to spend trillions of dollars outside of the country, you know? Because when you talk about your business is suffering and they're saying there's not enough money, well, there's enough money for a war. It's sitting there in the coffers, you know, you can just transfer a trillion, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it all is going to come out of the middle. I, I mean, basically, it all comes out of our hive at the end of the day. I think more and more people realize that. Especially mm-hmm. when they start seeing what's happening, the prices of everything now. If you think this free money has been coming to you, it's just free. And there are people recognizing, I've noticed all the prices going up on everything. You know, everything, I mean, all this kind of stuff is happening. Hmm. So well, there are a number of people kind of figuring that out. Well, what happens when you start spending money you don't have? Right. Inflation. Inflation. Right, and they're absolutely. doing a really good job trying to hold it down, but it's inevitable that's going to hit. And so the people, once again, who's going to be really hurt by that? And I know there are in California, I know there are reports of different people who are upset because they're a small business. They're shut down. They can't do any work. They can't do anything. But yet these other large corporations can do that same work. And, and they're working. They're fine. No one's shutting them down. I mean, I was in San Francisco in September, and I walked around the mall, and I was getting my exercise walking by walking around the mall. It had been completely taken over by Amazon, but the thing that people don't realize is that Amazon doesn't pay taxes back to your state (laughs) unless they happen to have a facility. But even then, there's a loophole. And so when you're wondering why you don't have enough taxes to repair your roads and certain other things in your city, that's why. It's because that money is going out to Amazon for them to drop shit it from another state. I thought it was also interesting, uh, this came out uh, not all that long ago, that we are now importing more product, more manufactured product from China than ever in our history. Yeah, I believe that. I think so, I mean, literally, and the reason for that is because Amazon mostly is buying from China. I mean, they make more Mm -hmm. profit. And all these American goods that were being, that used to be sold, whatever, they were usually going through smaller companies, you know, smaller businesses. And so Amazon, they're smart. They know they make a, they make a better profit if they just have it all come in from China. So I was thinking, isn't that strange? Here we have a time when our economy is being shut down. I mean, all this is happening, yet we're importing even more from China than ever before. Right. To the point with being in tea, a real problem is getting shipments of tea coming in because unfortunately we don't grow tea here in the United States. And so they're coming from China, they're coming from Japan, wherever. And the shipments have slowed down tremendously and the shipping is getting a lot, a lot more expensive because there's such a massive amount of container ship spaces being used for the Chinese to ship the product in to this country like it goes to Amazon. Right. So we have this thing where you're kind of going, this doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're interested in this country. I mean, you know, you're shutting down middle class America, you're shutting down the businesses, the prices are going up. and yet- Everything's being automated. When you go to any of the stores, Target, all of it, I try to skip the automation lines where you swipe your own stuff because I know there are a lot of like, you know, high school kids and teenagers that need extra money for their families or for even for themselves, you know, for their school books or prom or whatever. And so I tried to not use those automated lines, but I was just in Home Depot and then I was just in um, 
in Target like a week ago for the first time in like months and all the lines except for two were completely digitized all computers because in business as you know your one of your biggest expenses is payroll mm-hmm. so these large companies even though they make billions of dollars they are trying to get rid of as many employees as they can so that their profit margins are higher yeah. you know and and the thing with that is that it's it's not okay my grandmother used to talk about a time when companies you would get part of the gdp so if the company did really well the employees would get like two percent or one percent of whatever the sales so they would work more as a team Mm -hmm. to make more money she's like but then all of a sudden it became i'm gonna hoard all the wealth and keep all the cream on the top and you know when you see these huge corporations gobbling everything up it's kind of scary it does and i remember there's a story about henry ford when he was first starting up his motor company and apparently he was, you know, got his, his factory going, he had his, you know, assembly line put together, the famous assembly line, and a little recession was hitting. And some of the other of his friends, Firestone, and some of these other people, right, they're saying, hey, you know, Henry, you, you, you know, you've got to shut down, you've got to kind of drop your numbers, you got to start getting, laying off some people and just go, because we had a recession hitting. Mm-hmm. And Ford did something very unusual. He said, I'm actually going to increase. And they just thought he was stupid. Hmm. They thought he was an idiot. They said, why are you going to increase? He said, because this is the way I figure it. The people who are going to be buying my cars are going to be, you know, these middle-class America. Mm-hmm. He said, if I'm hiring them, they have money, and then they can buy my car. So I'm going to actually increase my production. I'm going to increase all that. My employees, everything. And he did that. Everybody was, was you know, pulling back. And he actually did very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know? But I always thought that was interesting. Even back then, or even particularly back then, he had this understanding that if you have people who don't make any money, who's going to buy your stuff? Right. And sometimes I wonder about that. I said, so what's the game plan here? You're going to have these foreign countries make all this product, and you somehow that think money. the Americans are going to be so rich they just can do this forever? Mm-mm. What happens to poor and poor? Who are you going to sell it all to? Oh, my grandfather was talking about traveling around the country and that we look like a third world country in certain cities, yeah. you know, in certain towns. It's pretty bad. And I think, you know, the other piece of that is just to pour back into us, you know, to be able to maintain and take care of our own country and our own communities. It's really important. You know, um, people need work. It keeps them sane. <laughs> you know, it yeah. keeps them focused. Um, but I think America, you know, back in our grandparents' generation, they were very, they were the breast. Right now we're the baby on the teat, you know, and, and that is reversed as long as we're buying so many goods from China and other countries, we're doing ourselves a disservice. But also there are a lot of people that are training their children to buy off of Amazon. You know, they're training the children to buy digital products that you can't touch. Well, there used to be a day when you could touch your music, you could touch the LP, you could touch the CD. Mm-hmm. It's all digitized. But now with the gaming, it's the type of brainwashing that they use because a lot of people don't realize that the violent video games are originally only used for warfare and at times of war. And so when they play those games, they get programmed and brainwashed to be very strategic in their you know the way they move their body motions and everything and there's some video games where it talks about killing people robbing people putting the gunpoint i mean it desensitizes them but people don't realize those games are originally created to train soldiers 
to kill so that they would kill digitally before they would go out into the field. Mm-hmm. But you're taking all these children from the first time you put an iPad in their hands if it's not a child game and you're training them to think like a soldier before they've ever even had a gun you know and you wonder when there's mass shootings and stuff it's not just because of the gun the gun doesn't do anything unless the person behind it has the intent or is trained to kill mm-hmm. but then you combine that with the fact that the kid can't get the new skin or the new armor or uniform on their character unless they spend twenty dollars thirty dollars i watched one kid whose parents gave him a thousand dollar budget for a digital craft that you can't even touch how do you teach those children to value anything that's tangible if the only thing that they're trained to care about are things that are invisible and you can't touch it's like like I joke and always say it's like the mafia the mafia says you know what you give me all your gold and your money and I'm going to give you back nothing but air and numbers sound good right while your poor little family and your dogs and your animals aren't being taken care of and there has to be that balance you know of the responsibility of things you can touch like feeding the cat i know that sounds very simplistic but even with my nephew did the cat get fed today does he have water <laughs> you know like and it's my neighbor's cat but still you know like to make sure that the things that are around you are just as tended to as your five hours on the video game you know and to make sure that you limit that time unless you want your child growing up with ptsd you know and so my question for you is like in terms of business so here you have the path of tea what do you think it's going to be like a hundred years from now? Poof. You're in the future. I think you're going to find people are going to be going back to a lot of the basics. I mean, you know, you, you can get somebody swing out. I know some people, oh yeah, we're just going to become, we're going to be machine. We're going to become machines. This trans, transhumanism, whatever it's called now, where they're putting forth these ideas. Yeah, we're going to be slowly becoming part machine. It's like the Borg or something. Mm, and they're yeah. starting to get into that. And I was, I read this uh, novel. And it was called, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. But anyway, Omen. Not, not Omen. Anyway, something he's talking, this novel is about this, you know, this particular brilliant designer and creator of all kinds of, you know, electronic and computerware and stuff like that. Anyway, and so he's has a whole theory, but we're just going to become more and more like machines we're going to be like more and more machine implants everything so we're going to start losing our humanity and mm-hmm. you have this theory that eventually humanity will disappear on the planet because we're going to be becoming machines mm-hmm. you know and it's kind of a strange it's like nasa sci-fi not nasa sci-fi kind yeah but nasa you had to get a human being on the moon right it wasn't a machine you're saying to the moon you're sending a human being you know, and so what do you have to do to get a human being to the moon? Well, that was very difficult. Right, without killing the human. Right, without killing a human. You have to, you're supporting life just going through space. So that's different, but. I think weaponized drones are going to be dangerous. You know, they already created an indestructible drone, but once they weaponize that, it's going to be like miniature Star Wars between a bunch of immature boys wanting to shoot at each other. It could be. I mean, Unless it's just China wanting to shoot everybody in Russia. You know, like <laughs> North Korea, don't give him any drones. He's not allowed to have them yeah. at all. I know the technology. I know a lot of people are starting to look at the technology and they're kind of going, oh my God, what does this mean for the future of the human race? What does it mean for our children? What are they going to become? Oh, we're, we're, I'm sorry, we're actually closed now. Okay, sorry. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I do think that we human beings are going to go back. There's going to be a big mm-hmm. movement to go back to being human again. Yeah, I, I mean, do too. I mean, you know, this is... 
I don't think it's going to be something that's going to last because it's not alive. I think that's a big issue too. Do we want to become something that's dead? Something's not really alive, living life. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's so much stuff that's just taking people to a place, kids, to like a place. Like robotics. Every, it's just everything is this virtual reality. It, it's not alive. Yeah, and I'm hoping they don't lose the concept that the technology is meant to be a tool to help humanity. When you turn the technology into a weapon, human life isn't a video game. There are no extra lives unless you can figure out how to transfer the soul like those old doo-doo people. But, you know, soul transference, that's a whole other conversation. But, like, there is a limit to the technology. You know, and I'm hoping that the dreams around it are pretty. It all comes down to the intention of people using the technology. Mm -hmm. As always, you know, every weapon we have, what's the intention for these weapons? Who's going to use the weapon? Why would you know, the whole thing? And so it's going to be the intention. So like you're saying, the technology is supposed to serve humankind. Well, Mm -hmm. some people don't see it that way. Right. They say, this is a great tool. We can actually control everybody around us. Yeah, but that's such a dumb concept in my opinion. I mean, children don't like to be controlled by their parents. Even when you're a teenager, you're trying to sneak out of the house and do stuff. As an adult, you don't mind working for people and being respectful, but you don't want to be controlled by anyone. You don't want them controlling your communication, your money, nothing. Well, that's so. Happened. Well, see, that's why I say I don't think that's going to sell in the long run. <laughs> but China has sold it they to a certain now. extent. They have for now. Yeah. And just especially about China, because being in psychology. When I was in psychology um, back in, this is like the early 70s, I was reading some of these different things. There were American psychologists who were starting to get together. They were interfacing with their counterparts in China, mm-hmm. psychologists in China. I found it really fascinating because there was one couple of professors they were talking about, they're clinical psychologists, and they were talking to their counterparts. They said, well, and they were talking about the different kinds of syndrome. You know, want to know, okay, what kind of things are you treating? What kind of problems do you have in your society? And they're all talking to each other. And uh, the conversation came up where they're talking about, well, what if someone goes into some kind of, they have an episode, mm-hmm. a psychotic break, or, you know, whatever. Um, what, how do you treat that? And they were talking to him, and they were asking the American Service, well, how do you treat someone who is, you know, have some kind of a problem like that? He said, well, basically, we have to get them connected back into other people. We have to get them back into relationship. They, they kind of become disconnected from their fellow human being. Mm-hmm. And then things get really strange and weird for them, all the different kinds of things you could put, you could classify that condition. And they said, so essentially, we have to get them to reconnect with them, so you get them back in a relationship with other people, back just back in touch, right? And the Chinese said, we do just the opposite. If someone's having a breakdown like that, we take them and we put them in total isolation in a room. They're cut off from any contact with another human being. Totally incomplete. We don't even let them see. I mean, it's just totally, they're separated from any kind of contact with another human being. Hmm. And the Americans going, what? I mean, it sounded just horrific. Is it sensory deprivation? No. They said, you give them enough time, they come back to themselves. See, the problem here is people get to identify with the masses. They mm. lose their identity in the masses. And we have to just get them back so they reconnect with their individuality. That's why we give them tea. Yeah. And so over here, it's just the opposite. I was reading that going, that is the strangest thing. 
and says an awful lot about the two different cultures. Americans, their problem is when they get disconnected from their fellow human being. Mm. You know, and over there they get too connected. They lose their identity. And I thought, wow, it's just the opposite situation. And then I have had a uh, nephew, and he actually had a a year. He was an exchange student. He was in Princeton, there in China. He told me his experiences, and it's just like, what? I, it was amazing, just the differences in the two cultures. Mm-hmm. Big differences. And so, in a way, the Chinese as a culture, they're more controllable.、Mm. But it doesn't mean they're absolutely controllable. Right. It doesn't mean that, but well, I、anyway. think once the dream of freedom is planted in the heart, it's always there. Well, you look at Tiananmen Square. Yeah, yeah, that, I love that photograph. It's one of my favorite photographs, piece of art. I mean, they dealt with it very harshly when they put it down. So、But、anyway, so how did you use art to stay connected across distance during the pandemic? How did I use art?、Um, Good question. I didn't even think about that question. I don't you love when I throw those trick questions? Yeah, those little quick trick questions.、Uh. Well, you know, we did our show for like six months. How did you、oh, come、yeah. out of that? I mean, how did you feel a little lighter? A little... Yeah, yeah.、Mm-hmm. Six months and three free therapy for you. So that was the art. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. That's right. Sorry,、um, I wasn't even thinking about that that we were doing. Yeah, definitely. You know, it was fun. It was just kind of connecting and getting into a childlike place with it all. Well, yeah, because that's like、fun. switching gears for you. Yeah. Because you're always in business mode. Yeah, get this done, get that done. You know, the parental mode. You know, now I get to be a child. You know. <laughs> list of、up. things to do, honeydew list. Yeah. So, what about tea? Where do you see like tea and like a tea shop? Where's the path of tea like a hundred years from now? There'll still be tea shops.、Mm. Maybe even more. Maybe there'll even be more of a thing because, well, the design of our tea shop is not to be a Starbucks or something like that. Right. Cranking out a product. That's not it. The tea shop that we have put together really, the idea was to really embrace that idea like a Japanese tea shop. So one thing I've noticed: you walk into a restaurant when we used to walk into restaurants, and you see, say, a group of people there—a family, obviously a family—and maybe four, five, six people. And it's amazing how many people are not talking to anybody there. They're communicating with somebody who's not there. There's just no socializing going on. Right? They're、and、not present. Yeah, they're not present with each other. They're not relating to one another in the flesh.、Mm. You know, they're saying, "Oh, digital, everything's." No, it's not all happening. You miss an awful lot on digital. I have people say, "Yeah, you text someone, but you know you can't see all the little inflections. You don't know. You say these words, you have this sentence. What exactly did they mean? If you were sitting there in front of them, you would know exactly what it meant because there's all that inflections, all the facial expressions. There's a lot of nonverbal communication, which all gets eliminated when you're、mm-hmm. talking to someone on a phone or maybe a phone, but you know the digital stuff." And so it all gets eliminated. So there's so much social contact that's just disappearing. I know in Japan they have a—I can't remember the name of it, the word for it—but they have a big problem in Japan and Korea. And they had these kids now. They're afraid to leave their home. Right. They have like a social disorder. Oh, it is a huge social disorder.、And、it's got to a point where it's getting to be a national concern. There's so much of it. Right.、And、Korea is just as bad. So they have these names for these kids who. They're afraid to actually interface with their fellow kid. Now they'll、mm. talk to them all day long in their little phones and devices and all that kind of stuff, 
you know, particularly the texting, all that, but they're afraid to actually be in the presence of another kid or somebody their age, their family, they know their family, fine. So they're afraid to leave their houses. I remember sitting at a meeting one time with a bunch of teenagers and there were like maybe 10 of them on a table. None of them talked to each other. They were all texting each other on the phone. And I thought, really, this is how y'all are socializing? Like it's not even, I feel sorry for them. Like they're missing out on a whole nother level of expression and connection with people by that. And the sad thing is, is they're being trained to be that way. It's all training, right? From the time you're like five until you're 20, it's training you, you know, you learn how to walk, you learn how to talk, you learn how to do everything. But if with the devices, if I'm only, I guess the best way is it makes me think of um, Steven Spielberg when he created Wally and the movie about the little robot you know and at that point people didn't want to walk anymore they would sit on their little floating devices and talk to each other on the computer even if they were right next to you Mm -hmm. and i was like we're seeing a version of that now yeah you know and they miss out they miss out on connection because your television will always be there you can replay things a hundred million times but the people that are sitting in front of you are not finite you know, they're, they're, they have limited time, so enjoy them while you can hold them and hug them and touch them and kiss them. Yeah, you know? there's just so much communication. And, um, and it was not lost to me. In psychology, they talk about, you know, one of the things that's crucial for a newborn is actually literally human touch. We're very much a tactile right. touching species. And you start eliminating that. What kind of issues you gonna have? What kind of problems? Well, the babies don't make it. You have to hold the babies. Like, yeah. you know, you have to rock the babies, especially if they're in the hospitals and stuff. You have to rock them because babies yeah. die without physical touch. That's right. There's a famous you know? study done God, many, many years ago. Don't go get a, a massage. Yeah, it was a nunnery, mm. and they, they, the nuns, this particular nunnery, had a huge. It was, it was a terrible attrition rate. They were taking care of orphan babies mm-hmm. or babies that were abandoned. And the attrition rate was, the death rate was horrific. And so the authorities came in and said, what the hell's going on here? So they went and did this whole study, one of these early studies, like a psychological study. And what they found, the nuns took immaculate care of these babies. I mean, they did everything just perfectly, as far as all the things you would think of it to care for a baby, except one thing. They're nuns and somehow in this order, they didn't hold and touch them. Mm. And they finally concluded that, because they looked at all these other places. They They're love starved. They are literally starved for human touch. And these brand new little babies, they're, they just weren't making it. And, and that's when they realize, mm. okay, that's a critical part of the human nature is to have that touch. So you have these people, they're not touching, they're not connecting with each other, they're not in contact with each other. Mm-hmm. It's all digital and what all that may be. And what kind of problems are you going to have from all that? Right. Well, you get in Japan showing up and Korea is showing up as these kids who just literally cannot socialize. And they, they can't function. Right. And you can't yeah. you can't really do that because you, you want a loving society. And to have a loving society, you have to communicate and connect yeah. and touch, you know, even yeah. if it's just holding someone's hand. So I think people are going to be having rediscovering, okay, guess what, guys? We've been really askew. You're really off course. We need to get back to being humans. I'm waiting for kids to get sick of computers because you know how, like, you have the progression of, like, the 8-track tape to the... Um, LP like on the disc which you know are collector's items now but then it went to like the eight the the audio tape LPs came first right before your time then the four track came in when I was in college and you have the eight track see you remember you go to the cassettes (laughs) you go to cassette tapes then you just keep progressing 
right now you have all digital music but I'm waiting for the kids to be like I'm so sick of sitting at the computer I want to go outside and play with my friends you know and and just get off the technology for a day or two you know and unplug because sometimes you just need to unplug it's like watching too much television you know and that's the benefit of this tea shop is that you get to unplug and really be with people in the moment and get to have conversations yeah. and really good tea with them yeah. and try to figure out how to fold an origami crane which I have not quite mastered yeah it reminds me of the crane in the cathedral in New York mm. there's a church with cranes a thousand cranes mm-hmm. yeah so my name is Lex Lumera. I'm with the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture as a citizen artist. And tonight, Chris is going to read his People's State of the Union 2021 Poetic Address. Which is, I'm not a poet. Everyone needs to understand that. I was asked to write a poem, which I haven't written in many, many years. So, here goes. Okay. I feel Thea's desire for a new day. As I hold her, she experiences a rest she has never felt before. From that pose, we come forth. Hmm. I'm pondering on that a moment because it's like that feeling of safety that love gives you. That's what I get out of that. It's really beautiful and very sweet. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. And for sharing yeah. and enlightening us. And thank and you for your work you're doing. Thank you for sharing your poetry and your vision. And for everyone who does not know, Thea is Chris's wife. She was very good friends with a woman by the name of Lucia Bedler, who had a store three doors down from the Path of Tea in Houston, Texas on West Alabama. She was my mentor. She was also a former nun. And she did uh, holistic medicinal work as well as cook. She knew every herb by heart. She was kind of like the Latin Martha Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) And she hosted a lot of parties. And that is actually how I know Chris. Thanks for listening to Charity Network News with Lex Lumiere. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out online. Or please leave a review. Join us again next week. Until then, focus on creating solutions and making a positive impact in the world with your presence. Be kind, volunteer, pay it forward and keep shining your love light.